we should be upset when we see people locked in little kids, but even adults locked up in cages. We should be upset when we see not just white men going out killing black men, but then the police department not doing anything. And, and the list goes on. So those are things we should be upset about, but they should call us to action. Hello and welcome to this episode of Who Belongs. My name is Mark Abizade, the host of the show. And in this episode, we'll hear from John A. Powell, professor of law and African-American studies at UC Berkeley. He's also the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute. In the interview, Professor Powell offers historical context for the conflict over this question of when to reopen the economy and the government's authority to impose shelter-in-place orders. This issue has been framed as one that pits freedom against equality, but as Professor Powell points out, these two notions haven't always been seen as in opposition to each other, as concepts of freedom have evolved over time. We'll also talk about the murder of Ahmad Arbery, the young black man who was gunned down in February by two white men in Georgia. And I should just note that this interview was recorded on May 7th, just hours before police arrested the two gunmen following widespread uproar that ensued with the release of the footage showing the killing. So our comments do not reflect that update. Here was our conversation. So, John, there's a few things we need to talk about, and we'll just get right into it. And I want to start by asking you about your views on this conflict that we're seeing around the country over reopening the economy. And uh, this issue was the focus of an op-ed you had published last week in the San Francisco Chronicle. So can you give us a little overview of your position on that issue and your interpretation of what we're witnessing in these protests that are demanding the lifting of shelter-in-place orders? Well, first of all, uh, thanks for doing the podcast. Uh, obviously, these are difficult times. And with, with any complex issues, there's going to be a number of different perspectives and positions sort of supporting and opposing those issues. Uh, so when I talk about what's going on in the context of the protest, uh, I'm not suggesting that everyone who feels this way or everyone who joins the protest necessarily feels the same way. Uh, but I do think there's an underlying theme that runs fairly deep within America. And I think the theme is oftentimes framed in terms of freedom versus equality. So you don't just hear from the protesters, you hear from a number of the governors who are supporting uh, opening early or, or refuse to close despite, I don't want to interfere with people's freedom. That's people are adults, they can make their own decisions. Uh, and there's a notion that anytime you do something like this that is constrained people or um, somehow it's the government overreaching. And this position really goes back at least to the, to the beginning of the founding country, and to some extent even further than that. Um, and there's a tension or an apparent tension between the way we think about freedom and the way we think about equality. And if you go back to the founding of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, what you find is that the men uh, were deeply conflicted about both freedom and equality. And um, the person who drafted the Constitution was from Virginia. The person who drafted the Declaration of Independence was from Virginia. Virginia was the largest, most powerful state, and 40% of the slaves in the United States lived in Virginia. Um, and, and they were conflicted about both the idea of freedom, equality, and slavery. Uh, and they were hoping that that conflict would resolve itself because they knew that they punted on it. Slavery is not mentioned in the Constitution. Uh, there's some reference to it, but the word is not there. And equality takes a back seat in the Constitution, um, and freedom is front and center. And the reason of that is not because of just intellectual, although many of the people who are involved in the Declaration of Independence and, and the Constitution 
were intellectuals, particularly Jefferson, who was influenced greatly by France, um, and were troubled by slavery. And were troubled, and so if you read the Declaration of Independence, it starts off with, um, we hold certain truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal um, to pursue liberty. Uh, all men are created equal. Jefferson had over 200 slaves. So how do you sort of square that? And it's not just a small thing. He was troubled by it. He talked about it. He wrote about it. Um, and so one of the ways the United States dealt with that early on was to punt on the question of equality and arrange some kind of freedom or liberty. Now, even the word freedom is a complicated word. And Orlando Patterson, in one of his uh, books about um, freedom and uh, basically the making of Western civilization, the making of the West, he talks about freedom actually covers multiple areas. That's what he calls individual freedom. Um, I can do what I want as long as it doesn't interfere with other people. And he talks about sovereign freedom, which is basically I get the right to do whatever I want, even if I can trample, even if I trample on other people. And civic freedom, I have the right to participate in the government and in civic life. And those three concepts, and there are more, those three concepts themselves are in conflict. And so if you think about many of the demonstrations, they're arguing some form of sovereign freedom, that I get to do what I want, even if it hurts other people. Because the whole idea of shelter in place is that uh, it's not simply we're restricting the actions of the, the person being uh, in place, the person in the home or wherever. We're doing it because the person can injure others. That if we don't do that, we can injure others. And those others are of equal concern as the actor, him or herself. That's very similar to Mill's concept. Uh, and and many of the ideas of freedom comes from Mill's. Uh, and Mill's have the idea that basically they're self-regarding acts and they're other regarding acts. And this is John Stuart Mill's you're talking about. John Stuart Mill's, yes. And uh, he wrote a piece, uh, a book called On Liberty. Uh, and he said, basically, you have the maximum amount of liberty or freedom uh, when your acts were self-regarding. So if I want to stay in my house and read trashy novels or smoke dope, if it's not impacting anyone else, even though it might be a bad thing for me, the government and others should not have, have a right to interfere. So I have a personal right to that freedom, the individual right. Uh, but when my actions affect others, uh, he calls those other regarding acts, I think, um, then the right is actually not individual. That's a social right if I have it at all. And a good example would be, I may think I have a right to drive a car that produces uh, emission into the atmosphere. Well, from the Millsian perspective, he would say, no, you don't have a personal right for that. You don't have an individual right. If you have a right, it's because we have collectively come together and said, we're gonna allow John to drive this car, even though it injures, because the benefit is, is uh, better than the injury. But that's a, a collective decision. That's not a personal decision. So I don't have, and if the collective changes its mind and says, okay, we're gonna limit emissions because it injures the environment, which all of us actually partake of, uh, then I can do that under a Millsian approach. And so what I'm saying is that what happened in, in these protests is that people are glomming onto a notion of freedom, 
without thinking about equality at all and without thinking about our relationship to each other at all. Um, and yet, even from the museum perspective, it's ignoring the fact that by going out, I may be injuring others. Now this tension, which I talked about in the article, was something that early lawmakers was very much aware of, and so was Lincoln. And so when Lincoln gave the address at Gettysburg uh, after the battle in November uh, 1863, uh, he gave the speech, which he actually wrote many drafts of, so it wasn't spontaneous. And he made reference to not the Constitution, but the Declaration of Independence. And he did that because the Declaration of Independence lifted up the concept of equality. Equality was paramount. E equality was how you get to liberty. Um, and, um, and so what he's trying to do is put these back in conversation with each other and get a balance. And so he ended that short speech, which is very powerful, by calling for a new birth of freedom. And what he's calling for was a birth of freedom where freedom and equality and inclusion are all interrelated. Uh, and out of that effort came the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Uh, the 14th Amendment being the one that enshrined uh, equality. And Lincoln, as you know, was assassinated. And so in a sense, that new birth of freedom never really happened. It was in a sense, uh, you could say, stillborn again. Uh, and so when people glom on to liberty without giving proper weight to equality, they're not really considering our history and the tension in that history. And many, and, and that tension has become sharper now since the Soviet Union failed. Because if you look at Brown v. Board of Education, which is in many ways, a lot of people consider that the most important civil rights case in US history, uh, the United States government filed a brief in that case, arguing for the court to integrate schools. Uh, and it talked about both our position in the world and our need to sort of, in, case, in this case, the Negro, uh, treat the Negro with equality because the rest of the world was looking. And so for the next 30 years, uh, the country had a balanced discussion, largely about equality and um, liberty, uh, in part because it was in competition with the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union failed, the use of equality in popular discourse among elected officials and the elite start declining. And so in a sense, we've gone back to pre-1950 uh, and started again of thinking of equality as freestanding uh, and not realizing that it's always been in relation to and in tension with the concept of um, equality. So what you did is you basically showed how that concept of freedom changed over time, how it used to extend to what um, slave owners used to claim was their freedom to own slaves, and then later on it extended to uh, segregationists' uh, claim to the right to send, for example, their children to all-white schools or to exclude people from different establishments based on, the, on their race by invoking the Constitution, saying this is my freedom to do this. So this whole concept kept on changing. How would you apply that idea to to today to the current pandemic and these people saying well if i'm you know if i want to go to work that has nothing to do with race that has nothing to do with me saying i'm above other people yeah so i mean again these are uh, important but also complicated concepts 
And I'm not suggesting that people are historians or constitutional scholars per se. Um, most people are not. Most people haven't read the Constitution. Most people don't know that history I just set out. And there's more to that history. There's a lot more. So, for example, I mentioned Brown v. Board of Education. After Brown, a very prominent constitutional scholar named Wexler wrote a series of articles arguing that the court had mis, um, mis, uh, was wrong in this decision for Brown. And it argued that the court had sided with Blacks who wanted immigration, Negroes at the time, and sided against whites who wanted to be segregated. He said, okay, so blacks may have a right to integrated schools based on the constitution, but whites had a right to segregated schools. Uh, and he was saying that the constitution is neutral, but the constitution is not neutral. It, 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 it embodies certain values. Uh, and the, the constitution is not just a document in terms of law, it also creates a sort of a normative way in which we think about the world. So everyone talks about free speech, Again, almost no one's read the First Amendment. Um, so what I'm saying is that what Mills and, and, and others were doing, were not just sort of putting out ideas, they were talking about how do we order a complex society. And uh, prior to the Civil War, the idea was that really the United States was a largely property-owning white society, a white male society. Uh, women had very few rights and until uh, long into our history, uh, 1830s, a lot of non-property-owned white males didn't have rights, didn't have the right to vote, for example, in many places. Uh, didn't have the right to vote directly for the Senate. The Senate was actually selected by states. Um, and so our history has been one of bringing more people in. So the, the, the foundation was there. And so it's, it, what I'm suggesting is that this is part of the American project. Uh, and the fact that it's been separated so that people who are identified on the right are more likely to identify with some concept of freedom uh, and people on the left who are, uh, are more likely to identify with some concept of equality is actually a distortion of our history. And it's distortion in many ways. So for example, uh, we talk about a free market, but clearly uh, that was not what quote unquote, the, the founding fathers thought. And it certainly was not what Roosevelt thought. Uh, and there was a period in our history where we did have the court should not interfere with the relationship between uh, corporations and an individual. It's called the Lochner era. Uh, and that era came to an end in, in, in the 1930s. Um, and it, it came to an end in part because what Roosevelt was arguing and others as part of the New Deal was that workers could not be protected uh, from corporations. Um, they weren't on an equal playing field. So to say that they could just contract didn't make sense. Um, so what's happening now is the country is more diverse. And we've never, in fact, Hobbes, another giant in terms of Western political thought, basically argued that there can only be one sovereign person in a country. So, so in a sense saying only one person can do whatever he wants and it would likely be a he. Everyone else would be in some ways, their freedom and their equality would be diminished by a sovereign notion of uh, freedom. Uh, I can enslave you, I can beat you up, I can kill you. Uh, well, that may be great for me, but it's not great for you. Uh, and so the notion of sovereign freedom, which is really what people are arguing, that I have a right to injure others, 
has never been um, embraced by um, most of the modern Western um, political thinkers. And it couldn't work. It's, it's unworkable. Uh, and so what I'm saying is that people are going back to a period of time and the period of time was punctuated in a very serious way by the Civil War. And the Civil War was certainly about race and slavery. Uh, so when people grab onto that idea, they're grabbing onto an idea that's associated with the right to dominate other people. Uh, they're grabbing onto an idea that uh, equality is anemic uh, because of slavery. They're grabbing onto an idea that's not a founding idea because the founding idea was not the Constitution. It was the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and um, Black, who was the dean of Yale Law School, I believe, wrote a piece about this, wrote a book about this called A New Birth of Freedom. And he sort of explicates a lot of this. Um, so it's an important discussion. It's not clear how we will totally resolve it, but it is important that we have it and that we recognize that freedom and equality um, are complex concepts, but they inform each other. Another important aspect of this op-ed you wrote was um, how it pointed out that there is a danger from these protests, not just from the vantage point of public health officials about spreading the virus, but um, it also threatens um, the um, the kind of um, cohesion we have as a society because they're very divisive and that there is a potential for these protests for this conflict to really spiral out of control and lead to violence. Um, you know, you talk about the possibility of a new civil war. Um, and Trump, in a lot of ways, has been kind of agitating for this because he's really explicitly been calling on these protesters to, quote, liberate their states, especially states that are uh, led by Democratic governors. So I want to know if you think that, um, you know, if you could just kind of talk a little bit more about this aspect of the situation and if you think Trump's doing this deliberately uh, or, you know, or if he, he doesn't maybe realize what the potential consequences of those kinds of statements are. Well, you know, I, I, I often hesitate to try to figure out someone's internal psychology because it's hard to know. Uh, but it's clear what their actions are. And sometimes you can have a sense of their intent or their internal psychology by repetition. Uh, so, uh, and it's clear that Trump is a very deliberately incendiary character. Um, he uh, trades in being controversial. Um, and he's, you know, he's, he's really uh, challenged the Republic and the constitutional and democratic norms that have been so important in this country. I mean, just today, uh, the Justice Department um, said they're not going to prosecute uh, Flynn for, uh, I mean, it's, it's and, and the prosecutors in the Justice Department who was involved in the prosecution quit, uh, a number of them, because they're saying this is just unheard of. First of all, this is a political decision. We're not, we're not supposed to be involved in political decisions. We want, we're civil servants. We want to do our job. Uh, but yes, Trump has traded very heavily in uh, um, sort of division. He's, he's gone out of his way to basically make the claim that certain people don't belong. And he's done it based on people's religion. So the, the Muslim ban, uh, he's done based on people's geography, uh, talking about Mexicans being um, you know, bad hombres. Uh, he's, uh, he's attacked blacks. He he's, he's celebrated his attack of women, uh, saying he could grab women by the pee and it's okay. Uh, and, 
and then essentially telling people to go break the law. Because these, uh, these shelter in place uh, provisions are law. Uh, and telling people to break the law for the president to be doing that, it's just phenomenal. Uh, and, and even then turning around and saying, we don't know if we want to help the states that are blue states, states that didn't vote for me somehow now are not full Americans. Uh, so yes, he's actually show, showing extreme division. He's not showing respect when a judge rules against him to suggest that because the judge uh, has a heritage um, where his family comes from somewhere else, which all of our families did unless we're Native Americans. And then they, they even came from someplace else, someplace else 10,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago. Uh, it's just unheard of. He's just, he's just constantly seeding negativity. He's constantly making the claim and he's, he's appealing to, uh, frankly, a lot of anxiety that people feel about the changes that are happening in the country and the world. And that's why the idea of make America great again, going back to some prior time. Um, and a lot of this obviously has long racial tales, long racial roots. We know the uh, Republican Party, which in the 1950s and 60s on civil rights issues, they were um, equal partners with the Democratic Party. Um, and you had, uh, you know, whether it was uh, Rockefeller or um, the, the, the Lodges or uh, Romney, you had um, uh, a number of prominent Republicans, independents who actually embraced the idea of creating a society for all of us. Um, that changed uh, um, after the Civil War, a uh, Civil Rights Movement, and the Republican Party deliberately adopted something which was called the Southern Strategy which was how do you actually trade on white anxiety about ending uh, racial hierarchy, racial dominance in the South? How do you trade on that to actually garner support for the Republican Party? Uh, and they deliberately uh, sought to demonize uh, people of color, particularly blacks. Um, and Trump took it to a whole nother level. After Obama was elected, the Republican Party talked about creating a larger tent where they invited in blacks, where they invited in uh, Latinos, and not just a token, but where they had serious discussion with those groups, uh, where they talked about issues of policing. Um, Trump would have, have none of that. His strategy was not to sort of involve people who were uh, black or Latino or Muslim, but really to harden a core support among uh, primarily uh, whites. And if you look at the Republican Party now, it really has become overwhelmingly a white party. And I should be clear, it doesn't mean that reflects all white people, because there are a lot of white people, 40 plus percent, that still vote Democrat, and they have much more open views. So this is a, a strategy, an ideology um, to garner support from certain groups. Um, and the law, the Constitution, the courts, everything is willing to run ripshaw over to get what he wants. Um, uh, so yes, he's deliberately doing this, and I have to think he and his folks are very conscious of what they're doing. Um, when he thanked blacks for not voting, uh, and the whole voter suppression, the whole idea of saying, you know, uh, he created this commission on voter fraud, and the commission basically said there's no voter fraud. And so he's constantly saying things that are not true, but that are inflammatory, uh, to garner not just favors, but to so division uh, between uh, a certain group of 
core white support is primarily and everybody else. So I want to get your views on uh, these two contrasting scenes that we witnessed in Michigan, in Lansing, outside the state house, or actually inside the state house in one case. Um, so one of them took place last week, which was when these uh, all these armed men who were demanding freedom, calling for freedom, calling for reopening the economy, stormed the state house, and they were just packed inside the state house. There was a session, there was like a legislative session happening, and I'm sure the lawmakers must have been really terrified about about the scene. The police, by the way, they were just kind of standing there and observing. They didn't take any action. They just let them do whatever they wanted to do. They weren't standing six feet apart. And then this week, we had a different scene where we saw a group of three black men at the same state house assembled outside of it, also carrying rifles. But uh, in contrast to the display last week, these men said they were actually here to protect those lawmakers who felt threatened last week. There's some footage and pictures of them actually escorting some of these lawmakers into the state house, and one of them, uh, one of the lawmakers, her name's Representative Sarah Anthony. Uh, she was later quoted in a news article expressing appreciation because she was saying that the police, the official security forces that are supposed to be protecting them, uh, weren't doing their job, that she didn't feel the protection was adequate. So what do you think about that sort of contrast and what emerges from a situation where people don't feel like the government is playing the role they're supposed to and be able to protect uh, to be able to protect the public, or in this case, lawmakers. Well, it's actually it's, it's actually very very sad. Uh, first of all, there are many different levels of government. So the lawmakers themselves represent government. The state uh, state patrol represent government. The police represent government. The judges represent government. Trump represent government. City council represents government. Uh, and what's happened? And it, up until recently, there was some sense that the government should work together in favor of the people, uh, even when there's disagreement. And uh, uh, former President Bush came out and basically said, let's put partisanship apart, aside. We're in the middle of a crisis. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, we care about American lives. And of course, instead of accepting the olive branch he was handing, uh, um, handing out, as well as others, uh, Trump attacked him. And in fact, basically uh, ratchet up a notch for more um, partisanship. Uh, and I want to say, so in my mind, it's not really Republican and Democrat in, in the traditional sense, because remember, Lincoln was a Republican. Something, Republican Party, frankly, has lost its way. Uh, they're doing things that they would have never done based on their principles uh, 10 years ago. Um, they're, they're really, this is Trump's party. Um, and Trump, even when he was running for election, he said he wouldn't um, agree that if he lost to Hillary, that he would accept that, or that he wouldn't encourage his people to engage in violence. Uh, and so in some ways, we're seeing an, a continuation of that expression. Okay, he won, and he's still encouraging his people to engage in violence. Uh, and unfortunately, the country is complicated history. Uh, but many police departments, and Mark, as you know, I'm from Michigan, many police departments have been uh, oftentimes um, having people who are uh, fairly hostile to civil rights. Uh, many police departments had a long history as evidenced by the Justice Department of uh, being associated with the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and, uh, and so 
in a sense, they're not discharging their jobs. They should be there to protect the legislature and anyone else who's following the law and against people who are threatening or breaking the law. And when they don't do that, it puts us in a very complicated, compromising situation. And so for others to go there with guns to protect the legislators, um, you know, you want people not to be injured. And so you have to sort of applaud that on one hand. On the other hand, the implications of it are very disturbing. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad guns weren't fired. Uh, um, you know, we had a case in Little Rock where we had the uh, National Guard trying to enforce segregation and ignore the Supreme Court. And Eisenhower called in federal troops. And so we, that was one of those situations where we had a standoff between two branches of government. That's always problematic. Um, and unfortunately, we have leadership now that actually agitates that. So when Trump tells uh, these folks that they should liberate the country, when he doesn't condemn them showing up with guns and swastikas and Confederate flags, uh, reminds me of his thing of saying there are good people on both sides out of Charlottesville. Uh, it's, uh, so I think he's tearing at the fabric of this country. Um, uh, and I worry for it. Um, and especially in this time of a pandemic when so much of America is hurting. New York took the brunt of it, um, but all indication is that the pandemic, the virus will move across the rest of the United States, including uh, so-called red states and rural states. Uh, and we should care about the loss of lives. Um, and to me, it's just shocking, right? That on one hand, uh, Trump was so obsessed and obsessed about um, football players taking a knee could see nothing good in what they were doing, even though they're trying to advocate on behalf of uh, black people, men and women who are being killed by the police and sometimes not being brought to justice. His only concern was somehow you're taking a knee and disrespecting the American flag. From my perspective, in, in many ways, one could say they're respecting the American flag because we're not living up to the values of the American flag. But then he turns around and people showing up with guns, some of them threatening violence, and he only has nice things to say about them. I mean, the, the, the hypocrisy, the, the veil and unveil racism uh, coming from the White House and beyond is just uh, amazing. And one can only hope that people at the state level, people at the city level, uh, people of, uh, of faith and others will come together and help us heal and move forward as a country and continue to wrestle with this thing of how do we actually have both equality and freedom? How do those two things, two wonderful ideas, uh, support each other in practice, not just in theory? Also contrasting the scenes from Michigan with the scenes from New York and other places and how the police are reacting to people who are you know, not observing physical distancing. For example, we've seen them really brutally attack uh, people in New York, mostly black people congregating and just, I mean, viciously attacking them and not just in a couple incidents here and there, but it's, oh, I feel like every day there's new video emerging of, of more incidents like this. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think it just like um, it, it pertains to this question of who these institutions were designed for and who, who they're serving. It's not really a question, but I mean, if you have thoughts on that. Well, so two things, I'm not, I'm not fatalistic and I'm not even, I mean, I'm, I'm saddened by what you just described and what does happen, uh, but also know wonderful things happen. I think it's important to actually um, 
look at some positive things as well as negative things, to look at things with a certain clear eye. Um, and as I tried to suggest in the little piece I wrote, but also in our conversation today, yeah, the country was designed uh, initially for uh, white males with property. Uh, but even in that design, there were ideals that went beyond that. Uh, there were ideals what President Obama used to say about uh, to, to create a more perfect union, and we hadn't gotten there. Uh, and so even with, within the design, there was a seed of hope and aspiration and possibility. Uh, it's not given that we'll get there, or it's not given that we won't go backwards, but the seed is there to go forward. And we need to hold on to that. So I think even as we look at our past with very clear eyes and, and, and with all the terrible and wonderful things that have happened, uh, we also need to hold on to that possibility as we think about our future. Uh, and so uh, you and I live in California. Certainly no state is perfect, but uh, it's the stuff that government has done here in California, um, letting people, some people out of jails, um, telling the police not to aggressively enforce shelter at home, shelter in place, even though the Bay Area and California were the, were the first. Um, the governor's deciding to extend benefits to undocumented immigrants. Um, so that's the government too. Uh, so we have to sort of, there's a possibility. We have to call out the things that just called out in terms of the police abusing their power uh, in, in a racialized way in this painful time. But we also should lift up uh, other police and other governments uh, doing positive things. Because otherwise, if we get too fatalistic, people don't, people sort of give up and think there's not a possibility to move forward. And we probably will, we can move forward. It won't be a straight line. We may move, uh, and we can actually become a more perfect union, but it takes work. Or we can continue down this road and sort of watch the destruction of our country. Okay, now I feel guilty about the next question I'm going to ask you because it's also in that direction of fatalism um, and depression and sadness and anger that I think a lot of us felt when we saw that video emerge this week of Ahmad Arbery being gunned down in Georgia while he was jogging. Uh, and then again, this I mean goes into the role of the institutions, the role of the, of the police and taking action or not taking action, but the, the case is so outrageous for so many reasons. We can just start with the fact that um, these two white men could uh, chase down this young black guy, 25 years old, going for a jog, minding his own business. Um, in February, murder him in cold blood, broad daylight, and then not even get arrested. Uh, you know, they're just, it's been more than two months now and they're just at home or whatever. Um, what do you make of that? Well, you know, the, I mean, it is, so first of all, I, I want to be clear. When I say, you know, there are positive things, I don't mean that we shouldn't be upset, angry, and take action for, for the negative things. Um, you know, uh, Reverend Dr. King talked about righteous indignation. So there's some things that should upset us. We should be upset when we see people locked in, little kids, but even adults locked up in cages. We should be upset when we see uh, not just white men going out killing black men, but then the police department not doing anything. Uh, you know, we should be upset when we see uh, law enforcement officers uh, or security guards kicking black people out of Walmart uh, because they're wearing a mask. Um, and, and the list goes on. Uh, so those are things we should be upset about, um, but they should call us to action. Uh, and, and we should also understand, for example, in, in the case of what happened in Georgia, 
one of the people who was expressing outrage, which is positive in this sense, uh, was a white woman. Uh, and she was like, I'm not associated with that. That's terrible. That really upsets me. Uh, and that's so we can start breaking this and realize that there are people, you know, who some of them not in institutional positions, some in institutional positions who will do the right thing, who will take a stand. Then there's some that won't. Uh, and it goes beyond, as you suggested, it goes beyond just a bad apple. Uh, we have, uh, for the last several years, the whole uh, movement of uh, Black Lives Matter was basically saying, not simply that black people were being killed disproportionately by the police, many of them un unarmed, some of them children, some of them when they're trying to walk away. Uh, it's that the prosecution is that we would not then hold them uh, accountable. Uh, and so we are creating an institution of, uh, of violence, uh, an institution of um, killing with impunity by the state, which is worse than even killing by individuals. Um, so yes, I think from my perspective, we should be upset about that and we should fix it. Um, and not perfect, but I felt like uh, Eric Holder, when he was attorney general, he started taking actions against some police departments. He had a lot of police departments under consent decrees looking at their action. That's not the case under Trump. That was not the kind of the session. That's not the case under Barr. Um, uh, so they've taken these institutions and turned them around. So what, is, what does Barr talk about uh, being upset about? He's talking about being upset that some states are still closed, even though every medical professional, every expert says we shouldn't open too early. Barr, who's not a medical professional, is talking about bringing a, joining a lawsuit to force states to open. We should be upset about that. Uh, and we should talk about it, we should write about it, we should organize about it, and we should vote. We should get a new set of, and, and getting different people in there won't solve everything, because part of it is institutional. Uh, but it helps. Uh, and there's a big difference between almost anybody else than, and the current administration. Well, what do you think about that? I mean, you talked about him being killed with impunity or people killing other people or the state killing people with impunity. What gives people the, the, the sense that they have a right to do that? You know, and I think it does go back to that, that idea of freedom that we were talking about earlier. It's like, I have the freedom to do this, this and that. And I have a freedom to gun down this guy who's jogging on my street because I, quote, suspect him of, of uh, being involved or in a burglary or something. You know, part of it is, is, is a core, and I think they're, a minority, but they're emboldened by the president. Uh, people who feel like, as, as I said with Brown, that, that this is a white country, this, that black people don't belong here, that Jews don't belong here, that Muslims don't belong here, this, and, and that they have a right. And then in, in, in Georgia, you also have uh, Stand Your Ground, which is a terrible law. And it's being, the law is terrible, and the way it's actually implemented is terrible. Now, in this case, it was clear from what I know, uh, that there was no stand your ground issue. These guys were in a truck, you know, they passed the guy, they passed, uh, um, and then they claimed though, that they were standing their ground because a fight ensued. Uh, so um, laws are important and it emboldened people. It's what we say is important, it affects people. Um, so this, we've had a long history of people who are considered marginal or less than or other uh, trying to get justice at every level. And that affects not just what's happened in the courtroom, what happened on the police department, that affects 
private individuals. What we should do is actually participate at every level. We need to hold not just individuals accountable, we need to hold the police department accountable. We need to hold the system accountable. Uh, but at its best, at its best, and we've never had it at its best, that's what a democracy represents. And democracy, the concept of democracy that we embraced largely comes from the Greeks, some influenced by Native Americans as well. Uh, but it's the idea that if you're part, if you're a citizen, you're an equal citizen. You don't just have rights. You don't just have liberty. You're equal citizens. You have the right to participate. You have right to make laws. You have right to live throughout society. So we haven't achieved that. Uh, and some people feel like their, their rights, their liberties are somehow under threat. Uh, and that's being animated and amplified uh, by the White House, by the Justice Department, by some state houses. Uh, and it's, you know, the, the, the New South, unfortunately, looks way too much like the Old South. Uh, um, but we can't give up. We have to keep going forward. And, and again, um, there's no one strategy. Uh, one is to learn how to talk to each other. One is to have these interactions, to tell different stories. But the other is to hold our systems and our individuals accountable, uh, which includes um, getting involved. You don't fix the system by staying outside of it. You have to get involved. And that includes voting. All right, great. Um, we can just end it there. I guess we're out of time, um, unless there's anything else you wanted to say. Well, two things I guess I'll say in, in closing, or three. One, I'd be happy to do another session with you. Uh, <laughs> um, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. And watch, we're watching this pandemic, although the data keeps changing, but we're watching this pandemic uh, disproportionately kill Black people, disproportionately kill Latinos, disproportionately kill Native Americans, disproportionately killing poor rural whites. Um, that's the violence, that's violence itself. Um, and so our care has to be about all of us. How do we change the system? We shouldn't have a system where we're deciding where to send medical equipment, whether or not you're a red state or blue state. We shouldn't have a system which says the relief, whether you're unemployed, was gonna decide whether or not you're a red or blue state. We shouldn't have a system that says, because you're a restaurant worker and you don't make minimum wages, you're not eligible for unemployment insurance. Uh, we shouldn't have a system that says, you're an immigrant and an essential worker serving, picking our food, serving our food, uh, but because you're undocumented, you can't use a healthcare system. So our system is broken in so many ways. And this pandemic, I think, offers us an opportunity for a new birth of freedom. We can go back to the old way of sort of trying to button down and lock down and say this country is only for a small group of people. Uh, although in order for it to work, we depend on all of us. Or we can actually have a new birth of freedom and say, how do we actually come out of this for a country where everyone matters, every life counts, uh, and give one, everyone a chance to contribute? Those are the two big issues that I think that we're grappling with beyond just the pandemic itself. Uh, and you'll see, I think, acts on both sides. Uh, where we land would depend on what we do. Uh, and so I hope we will have a new birth of freedom and do the right thing. And that wraps up this episode of Who Belongs. I'd like to thank John A. Powell, Professor of Law and African-American Studies at UC Berkeley for coming on the show. 
John's also the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute. We'll put a link to Professor Powell's recent op-ed on the clash over shelter-in-place, along with a transcript of this interview on our website at belonging.berkeley.edu slash who belongs. Thank you for listening.